We're going to read again. We started there reading uh, the story of uh, uh, John's birth as it was uh, uh, announced to his father, Zechariah, who was a priest in the temple. We've been doing, if you're visiting with us today, if you're here for the baptism or if you're just visiting with us uh, in the city, we've been looking for the last number of months in our morning service at uh, the kind of great old stories uh, of the Old Testament, the children's Bible book uh, stories, and uh, we've been preaching on them, and we're coming up now to the first, uh, or the last of our two sermons, and the first from the New Testament. So we're looking at the birth of John today, and then next Sunday morning, uh, we'll look at the birth of Jesus. Uh, so that just puts in context where we are and where we've been reading. So I'd like to read the second section uh, we read uh, from the beginning of Luke, and now we're going to read uh, from verse uh, 57 of this chapter uh, to the end of the chapter, uh, the birth of John the Baptist, it's entitled. I think that's what's in your bulletin sheet as well. Uh, it's on page 856. Now, the time came for Elizabeth uh, to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, uh, uh, they came to circumcise the child, uh, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives are called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was on him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the ways of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the, until the day of his public appearance in Israel. Okay, so there we have uh, the story, which is well known, I guess, to most of us, the story of uh, the birth of uh, John the Baptist. And I want to put up a, te a completely different text this morning, um, because I do feel uh, that it strongly links into this story. Uh, so from Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. And uh, when Paul says that, he's speaking uh, about knowing 
the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of God's love, and that God is able to answer our prayers to know more about His love so that we can serve Him and uh, uh, rest, re recognize Him as our rescuer and our redeemer. Uh, our greatest need this morning, therefore, as Christians, or even if we are not Christians this morning, uh, is to know God's love for us. That's the greatest need we have in our lives. And to see that love as something that is uh, above and beyond what we can imagine. You know, we, we shrink it down to very small sizes, and we maybe appropriate it similarly to the way we appropriate human love. But it ought to be the focus of our prayers, as it was for Paul to the church in Ephesus, that we would know the love of God fully, because he says it's the fullness of God. And then he goes on to say, uh, give us this prayer, that this prayer uh, is that he can do exceedingly above and beyond what we can ask or think. Now, very briefly, I want to see that in the life of Ze Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, and then uh, look at the birth of, of John, just for a few minutes before the baptism uh, slightly later. So we've got these two characters. We've got Zechariah and we've got Elizabeth. They're both believers. They're both Christians, uh, if we can call them Christians before Jesus. They're certainly believers in the Lord God as their Redeemer and Savior. And we're told they're righteous. They're blameless, above reproach. They're consistent in their, in their uh, faith and in their life. Doesn't mean they're perfect, far from it. Uh, but they were people who uh, lived with a, a a short account before God. They went into His presence a lot. They asked for forgiveness. They recognized they were sinners needing a Savior, and uh, they had that relationship with God. Righteous, blameless. Uh, but, uh, they, but they were married together. Uh, hard to be married apart. They were married together, and uh, they um, did live with heartache. They lived with uh, a long-term heartache. Uh, because they were childless. And in the society in which uh, they lived, that uh, was a, a, a deeply troubling experience for them. Uh, the perception, the wrong perception, was that to be childless was to be under God's judgment, to be uh, under His disgrace, uh, and uh, that they must be harboring some kind of secret sin uh, for God not to bless them in such a way. So they lived with this great... Uh, conundrum, this great paradox, this great difficulty in their lives. They were serving and following God, but they, they felt that they weren't under God's blessing, His favor, and the, the oppression of people around them, uh, and the, the, the kind of judgmental eyes and the uh, smarting looks uh, were difficult uh, for them as they lived their lives. But Zechariah's profession was, his job was he was a priest, so he took very much to do with the religious life of the Jewish people and of the worship in the sanctuary. That was where he spent his time uh, involving himself in the worship of the sanctuary. And that was his workplace. His workplace was the temple. That's where he went to work. The place where God's presence was manifested to the people. And all the symbolism of the temple and all its rituals pointed to God, the character of God, and pointed forward to the sacrifice of Jesus, which was to come, God's intentions. And one of the things that happened uh, in the temple was that uh, incense was offered up to God. So, incense was taken, and it was, it was burnt. Uh, incense was burnt on the uh, offering, the, the, the sacrifice of, of offering. And uh, 
it was offered up to God along with the prayers of the priest. And it was this visual and sensual, and I mean by that appeal to the senses, a sign of praying in God's presence through sacrifice, through the, the altar of sacrifice, which spent that it came, uh, there needed to be, you know, the shedding of blood, which pointed forward to the coming of Jesus. And it was done continually, morning and night, this need for continual prayer uh, before the living God. And the priest represented the people before God. So that was his workplace, that was his job, that was his marriage, that was his family. And we come to this bit, which gives us the career highlight of his life, uh, the high point of any priest's life in uh, the ancient Near East uh, uh, this time in Judea was to be chosen by Lot uh, to enter the, sac- enter the holy place and offer the prayer of thanksgiving and petition before God and offer up the incense uh, on behalf of the people. That would be, for the priest, his highlight. It was the best day of his life. It was the pinnacle of his career. A bit like me being chosen to be moderator. But a million times better than that. It's not really been the pinnacle of my career. Uh, playing for... Um, oh, I've forgotten the name of the team. It was that much of a pinnacle in my career. Uh, yeah, uh, Anyway, my mind's gone blank. I'll not say it because it's obviously wrong and ungodly to talk about it. So, anyway, this was the pinnacle of his his career, uh, was to uh, offer the incense. And from this day on, he would be called rich and holy by all the people because he'd been chosen by God, as it were, through uh, through the uh, offering of lots to have this position. So it was a really special day for him really important, a highlight of his life. But it was nothing compared to what was to come. And in a sense, he sees the answer to God's love and God doing exceedingly above and beyond what he could ask or even think in the answer to his prayer. Now, it says that he prays in verse 13, it says that he prays in the temple. We're not told uh, what he did pray. And a lot of people uh, presume that it would have been a personal prayer and that he would pray as he would have done for many, many years, that they would be able to have a child. Now, that is perfectly possible, and it's perfectly legitimate to consider that, because the angel goes on to say, your prayer has been answered, and you shall have a child. And it may well be that that's what he prayed, but it's also probably much more likely that as the representative of the people praying a prayer that he was meant to pray publicly, as it were, and in an official role, he would be offering a prayer of thanksgiving to God, because it was the incense of thanksgiving, and also praying for the coming of the Messiah. That would have been part of his petitionary prayers on behalf of the people as they waited outside and uh, heard his prayers. And for 400 years, they'd been doing that. There was silence for 400 years. It was as if God hadn't answered any of their prayers, and there was silence. And yet he thought, oh, well, it's my turn. I better pray. I better pray for the coming of the Messiah. It's been 400 years. I doubt anything will happen now. But he prayed that prayer. And the answer was immediate and wildly extravagant. It's a remarkable, a quick, and powerful answer to prayer here. Uh, spooky. The angel 
Gabriel is there and tells him not to be afraid, brings him comfort, and tells him that he will have a child in his old age, beyond hope, given up for years. Maybe, maybe they'd even stopped praying that prayer because they were old people by now. But beyond that, he says, this son of yours, which is to be born, will be the forerunner for the Messiah. So, both of his prayers, if he offered both of these prayers, were remarkably fused together in God's uh, answer to him. The silence of 400 years is over, and how? In this amazing way. So much so that, like the rest of us probably would be, he doubted. He did, well, come on. He had an angel in front of him, but he still doubted. That can't possibly be the case. It's too amazing. So, he was given nine months of silence to work it through and pray through his doubt. There's so many things we can't really go into this morning. We're just going to skim over the surface. But it's a really great picture of uh, people of faith and the battles of faith and the reality of God uh, intervening in our lives. And I would want you as a Christian to keep going back to Ephesians chapter 3, the verse that we had at the beginning of the chapter which speaks about a prayer for the people of God, for the people of God in Ephesus, and also for us, that we would know more and more of the love of God, which because it's the fullness of God, it's, it's all we can want. And when we make that prayer, He is able to show us His love in ways that are above and beyond what we can ask or think. Pray to know that, because God loves us through our barrenness, our brokenness, and our need. And we have the privilege today of knowing what He has done on the cross and knowing that He has already done for us exceedingly above and beyond what we can ask or think and what He's already done on the cross of Jesus Christ. And what lies be before us as Christians is beyond our wildest dreams. And we need to keep that focus and remember that focus as it's expressed in, in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth. That's the first thing I want to say uh, is the surprising love of God. We, I think we need to be surprised by His love. I think it's all very plain. I can, speaking personally, it can be like that. And I'm not astounded. I'm not challenged to ask God for more revelation of His love in, in, in my life, and, and we need to do that. The second thing I wanted to point out from this story is the supernatural and the historical lie side by side in this story, in this account. So, you've got something cosmic and big, and also something absolutely down-to-earth and historical. Now, you remember Luke, because uh, we've just finished, in our church, we've just finished Luke going through Acts, which is his second epistle, as it were, uh, uh, his second book. Uh, and this is his first book, and he's a doctor, and he's, he's determined to give an orderly account of uh, uh, the gospel and the, the beginnings of the gospel uh, through Jesus Christ, and therefore it is matter of fact. You know, we know that, don't we? But, but most doctors, pretty matter of fact, the bedside manner, pretty matter of fact. Sometimes lack a bit of empathy, softness. Better watch what I'm saying. This congregation is full of doctors. You're all very empathetic and loving. But sometimes the stereotype is that doctors maybe lack that little bit of sensitivity in the, in the way because they're matter of fact and, and doing things. But, but and, and Luke is that matter of fact. And he's not, it's not even his right writing to Jewish people, generally writing to a Gentile audience. 
uh, people who wouldn't necessarily have been familiar with the, the supernatural in, in the way that Jews would have. But in this story, quite right at the beginning, he just, in a matter-of-fact way, speaks about an angel, angel Gabriel coming. Uh, there's prophecy uh, before it happens of the imminent coming of the Messiah and of John the Baptist as preparing the way, uh, speaking through the prophecies of the Old Testament about the great plan of God. There's, there's this great, miraculous event going on in historical reality in Judea, in the reign of Herod during the Roman occupation with a real and very ordinary family, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who will miraculously uh, have a child in their old age. And that's maybe just a, an incidental point to note uh, in this passage. But it's the unashamed balance of Scripture from beginning to end. It's the unashamed presentation that we have in the Bible all the time of the supernatural and the historical side by side, unashamedly. So it's a, and, and it can't be any other way. And we can't think any other way about the gospel or about the Bible or about its truth. It's, it's the reality of God breaking in to our very real, ordinary, historical world. It's the reality of an unseen spiritual world influencing the physical and material world in which we live. And we live in days which are hugely uh, focused on the material, on uh, the physical, and what we can see and feel and touch, as if there's nothing else. And yet God makes clear uh, that there is more to life than that simple material reality, that there is spiritual reality. And so we can unashamedly, and I hope not with, with by brain, we're not brain dumping, we're not, the other use of brain dumping, we're not dumping our brain, and we're not dumping our knowledge and our intelligence and our scientific mindsets and everything else that we believe in and, and know, we can unashamedly say we believe in angels and we believe in demons and in the virgin birth and in Christ walking on water and in the stone rolled away and in Christ being raised from the dead and Christ returning one day to judge uh, this world. He comes into history. He breaks into the ordinary and touches even today the ordinary life of millions and millions of people who come to faith in Him as Lord and God. And that's our hope. That's our longing. That's our prayer for today. It's our prayer for tonight for the carol service, that God will be with us, that He will challenge and arrest and stop and pour out His love on those who don't know Him and on us who do. So, that's the second thing. It's a supernatural and historical side by side. Then briefly, we see the angel speaks. I'm not going to say much uh, really about this side of things. Uh, it is important. Uh, the angel Gabriel uh, speaks, and he says, don't be afraid. He says, your child will bring joy and delight to you. And he says, your child is going to have a calling. His calling is to prepare the way uh, for the coming of the Messiah. And that, too, is hugely significant, uh, the message that he brings. How often, to the point of ad nauseum, have I said in this pulpit that God continually tells us in his message not to be afraid. Isn't that great? Again and again and again. Why? Because we are prone to fear and because 
it is sometimes overwhelming in our lives, both to Zechariah in a very intense and very real way, and also to us. We take that same message and the principles of that message to ourselves. Often the gospel, uh, the supernatural, the divine, the unknown, the whole concept and, and uh, speaking of, of death, it evokes fear within us. And yet, God often will come, and He comes through the angel Gabriel then, and He comes through His Word today, reminding us again and again not to be afraid, because He knows the future. And as we entrust our lives to Him, we are engulfed in His protection and his love. And it may be as young parents today, there's fears. Fears about bringing up children. Fears about inadequacy as parents. Fears about uh, going cross-eyed with a lack of sleep. All kinds of fears. And even in these practical things, God reminds us uh, as we have these precious realities of babies and children around us and of love for one another and of family in Christ, not to be afraid, but to entrust ourselves to the living God. It's a, a repeated message that He brings to us. And I think uh, at a very ordinary, a human level, He reminds Zechariah and Elizabeth that the child would bring them much joy and delight. And I think that is a, a simple recognition uh, at a very human level that that is what children bring to us. In our lives as parents, they bring joy and delight and heartache and pain and sleepless nights and grief and worry, but joy and delight. And we remember that, and we remember them as God's gifts, and we remember that you, as you have grown up and now are old and mature, were also children. And that your life uh, has been a joy and a delight. And that God sees you and sees every person as a joy and a delight, as a gift from Him. And uh, it is important to know and recognize and remember the ordinariness of who we are, the ordinariness of family life, and yet within that, that it is part of God's purpose and plan for us to recognize every single individual uh, as being his gift, and every single life as being precious uh, at that level. And just as John the Baptist's life had a purpose, that he was to be the forerunner who would bring the message uh, uh, of the coming Messiah to the people, so we all have uh, a calling and a purpose, and uh, we believe that for Rhea, and we believe that for all the children here, uh, and we believe it for ourselves, that we are calling, but you say, well, who of us have got a purpose like John the Baptist? Who, you know, who of us are, have such a high and noble calling in life that set apart and have a, an angelic announcements of, of, of our, our life's purpose and plan? But take a look at Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11, if that can maybe go up on the screen. Matthew 11 verse 11 where Jesus says about John the Baptist, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. 
yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, we don't have time to exegete that. But we recognize and see and know that we have a great calling as believers and a great focus of God's love in our lives and a purpose as we pray and commit our lives to him that is going to honor him and glorify him. And because of who we are and who we have in Christ, we have this great calling uh, that is greater than even the calling John the Baptist had. And then lastly, and very briefly, we see Zechariah's joyful response. And we read that in the song that he, um, prophetic song that he penned, uh, the prophecy from verse 67 onwards. And uh, this chapter is the first time that the the phrase good news is used, and it is indeed uh, great news. And the response, once they'd overcome fear, uh, the response was very positive and joyful and celebratory. We see it with Elizabeth, who sings a song of joy and uh, uh, delight in, in what is happening. We see it with Zechariah, and then, of course, we see it uh, with Mary, who all responded uh, with uh, great joy and praise and worship to God for what he's doing. And Zechariah, in his song, he gives thanks. Uh, you know, he would have offered a prayer of thanksgiving in the in the temple on behalf of the people. Maybe this was very different, much more kind of personalized, much more passionate. It wasn't just ritualistic or formulaic. He was thankful to God that that God has answered the prayers of the people and is going to redeem his people as he had done in the past, but in the coming of the Messiah. Speaks of the great deliverance that would be wrought by God. And he speaks prophetically about the place of his son, uh, that the son would prepare uh, his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people. And then he speaks beautifully and very, at the end of his praise, he speaks beautifully and very prophetically about Jesus. I'm not going to say much about this at all, because I'm gonna, it's going to be my theme for tonight at the uh, uh, short address at the uh, carol service. But he speaks about this uh, because of the tender mercy of our God in verse 78, whereby the sunrise, the rising sun, shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the ways of peace. Short, beautiful, prophetic message about the kind of savior Jesus would be. And uh, I'm not going to start unpacking that because... Uh, I'll just be repeating what I'm saying tonight. But it is, it is beautiful, and it reminds us uh, of the miraculous again, of this prophetic message that John was given, uh, not just only about his own son, but also about the Redeemer who would come and bring light into darkness and who would guide our feet into the ways of peace. So his response to this remarkable outpouring of God's love into his heart and into his life through answered prayer and through this great trigger of divine activity after years and years, centuries of silence with the coming of Jesus, the most momentous event uh, that the history of this universe has ever known and understood uh, is, is joy and his praises, to look to God 
in praise and thanks to him. And I do wonder sometimes, uh, particularly as I look at my own life, uh, the lack of joy and responsive praise to God and to his goodness. We grumble, we moan, we are kind of uh, plowing a hard furrow. Sometimes we feel the poor me's just overwhelming us. And there's a need for us, I think, to go back again and again to the Ephesians prayer, that God will show us his, the width and the height and the depth and the length of his love, because that is the fullness of God. And he goes on to say, uh, as we pray that prayer, he's able to do exceedingly above and beyond what we can ask and even think. We need that as people in our lives. We need it in our marriages. We need it with our children. We need it in our relationships uh, with our colleagues. We need to be, uh, understand and appreciate his love more and more so that uh, we are able to praise him and respond to him. As we hear his voice, fear is distilled and taken from us, and joy and delight uh, replace that. And, and we look for that. And I think it's good to look for that. And it's good to seek that more in our lives and recognize him and respond to him in joy. It's not a slapstick joy, and it's not a, a false joy. It's not a, 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 a kind of putting on a smiley face in the midst of everything that's happening. It's a deep-seated recognition of where we are, who our identity is, where we're going, how much he loves us, and a response can be joy for that. I sometimes think when I sing uh, that uh, it's, I end singing and I, praising and hymns and psalms, and I don't even know what I've sung. And sometimes I think in congregations, we look around at congregations, we think, well, if the look in their faces is, it, is any reflection of the feeling in their hearts, and it must be pretty joyless and grim and miserable. Now, I'm not saying we all need to smile. And sing. We don't need to do that. But there's that sense of intensity and, and response and reality. It may be that joy is very, very deep. But now and again, nice to let it show. Nice just to let it blossom. Nice to sing with enthusiasm and passion as if we're singing to the living God. And it's easy, as it must have been for Zechariah, to ritualistically, although privileged, make his prayer of thanksgiving and expect just to come out at the end of that and nothing to have changed. And isn't that easy for us in our worship? Isn't it easy for us in our lives to read the word, pray, come to church, leave again, and nothing's different? And we, we haven't looked for that sense of the presence and reality and expectation that comes from the living God. We all come with different needs, different weaknesses, different strengths, different joys and uh, different sorrows, but we seek to bring them before the one and pray for a greater understanding in it all as Christians of his love, the height, depth, length, and breadth of it uh, in order that we can know the fullness of God. That's our deepest prayer for one another, and uh, it will be our deepest prayer for Ria, and our deepest prayer for all the children, and indeed for all of us uh, in church. So let's bow our heads and pray before the baptism uh, today. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your grace. Uh, we uh, ask for forgiveness when we treat that grace uh, as an ordinary thing, as a plain and dull thing even, 
uh, or a distant thing. And we ask that we would wrestle in our lives uh, before the God uh, who is revealed in Paul's prayer as that great God of uh, outstanding love, uh, God of provision, God of grace, and God who in Christ reveals himself uh, to be uh, the one who loves us more than any uh, can ever love and is the fullness of God uh, as we recognize that. So may we come and trust, take away our fear, uh, bless us, we pray, and bless us together uh, at this happy time uh, as we uh, celebrate and as we participate in the uh, sacrament of baptism. And we pray and ask that you would uh, remind us of your covenant again and again, your commitment of your promises and of your goodness and grace to us. We ask and pray we would know and see that more clearly with each passing day. In Jesus' name, amen.